nobody is safe. From the man from Hong Kong. Listen, there's a Chinese cop in town. He's beginning to annoy me. Yeah, I think he should meet with a slight accident. Jimmy Wong Yu is the man from Hong Kong. A furious arsenal of martial arts. With his sights set on smashing organized crime. And now, it's time to sit back and enjoy The Two True Freaks Internet Radio Broadcast. Chris Honeywell is an internet loudmouth. Don't these kung fu guys realize they could get their fights over a lot quicker if they just kick someone in the nuts? Hated and reviled by his few remaining friends, he catches the attention of Thomas DJ, perhaps the world's most cunning supervillain. Ensconced in his ultra-scientific hideout, with only his robot army and stunning assistant to keep him company, DJ springs into action. What is this idiocy? In Virginia, use the molecular transmigration beam to bring this fool to me! Virginia trains the hellish mechanism, and with a clap like thunder, and in a blinding psychedelic light, Chris Honeywell stands before his tormentor. Normally, I do not suffer fools, but I see beyond the yawning chasm of ignorance that is your brain and the endless sluice of sewage which is your mouth that they form a basic animal intelligence that I may be able to mold to my own devices. Uh, okay. Therefore, in my mercy, I offer you two choices. Instant painless disintegration, or you study grindhouse movies at my feet now! Choose! Uh, I choose not disintegration. So be it. One month I shall assign you a movie to watch and will summon you again. Be ready, or the consequences shall be swift and merciless. Right, but how do I get to Now go! And thus began one of the most dangerous and unpredictable endeavors in evil sciencing. The Honeywell Experiment! Summon the subject. Thomas, I thought you said we were going to see a director. This is like the set of danger diabolic. Mr. Trencher Smith, with respect. This so, is royalty you're talking to. So he's an evil scientist like you? He's a director, a writer. He wrote a new book, actually, called uh, Alice Through the Multiverse. Yes. And he is 
a genius. And Thank he you. rocks some of, the, some of the most glorious shirts you've ever seen. I'm not wearing one of those today. It's a little cold for a Mambo shirt. Okay. They are classic Australian uh, and somewhat subversive shirts, uh, some of them. Uh, and they reflect Australian culture, um, sometimes in a critical way. Um, the Australian beer tree uh, shirt, for instance, is uh, it's a glorious one. Uh, and uh, anyway, so but uh, it's definitely sweater weather here at 36 degrees Fahrenheit um, okay. up, up here in the hills. Well, I've been trying to teach this. I guess you could call it a man about Grindhouse Cinema for a while and he very, very poorly understands the greatness of the Australian film boom of the 70s and 80s and considering that you're one of the people that really brought that boom to light in 1975 even though quite frankly the film feels very 80s <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's a point. It actually has some of the sensibility of Hong Kong 80s movies rather than mm -hmm. Hong Kong 80s movies. I was perhaps a little ahead of my time. Well, that's, that's okay because it's amazing no matter what era it is meant to be. Uh, so, Honeywell, this is Brian Trenchard Smith. You will, as I said, you'll treat him with respect and he and I are, and you are going to talk about The Man from Hong Kong, 1975. I think one of the, the, the first, I think it really is one of the first of the, the what they call exploitation films to kind of make it here in America. Yes, it was the first to get a major release through 20th Century Fox, though they messed it up. Uh, they initially released it as the dragon flies flies yes that's that's yeah. when i first that's i first saw it under that title actually well uh, obviously since you know, the death of bruce lee and the huge success of enter the dragon uh every distributor you know in america was importing any kung fu movie they could get uh, and they would retitle them with the word dragon in the right. title and you know, by you know, you know, by the time *Man from Hong Kong* was released in in the U.S. as *The Dragon Flies*, the the market was pretty saturated with *Dragon This* and *Dragon That*. Uh, and, and also uh, a lot of Bruce Lee imitators: Bruce Lai, oh, Bruce Lowe. You know. Yes. Uh, and uh, so, you know, a, initially uh, the the release failed, and then they said, "Hmm, uh, maybe you know." Uh, we should re-release it under its original title, or the, the title you know, uh, where it had been released in, in the UK and Australia, um, and uh, or it hadn't yet been released in the UK and Australia, but that was the title it was going to have. Uh, and then I flew over and remade the TV campaign, uh, putting you know more explosions and more hang gliding and kind of de-emphasizing the kung fu. Um, and going for the, the larger action and, and the, the pretty unique uh, hang gliding material, which you know, uh, you know, was you know, very, very fresh as far as movie goes were concerned. They, they saw it, they'd seen TV documentaries on hang gliding. But, uh, Wasn't uh, there also a, I, I, I want to say, 
James Coburn film. Yeah, Skyriders, and it was Skyriders, yes. And and Fox had had acquired Skyriders, and frankly, they had wanted to kind of protect the unique element of hang gliding uh, in Skyriders. So even though they called the picture "The Dragon Flies," the TV uh, campaign, you know, was you know rather short of uh, um, uh, you know of uh, of, of hang gliding so anyway i remade the tv commercials and got a new narrator for them and guess who i got to narrate the commercials i got <laughs> lurch the butler <laughs> ted cassidy. yeah ted cassidy uh he had this wonderful gravel you know you know thunder throat voice you know uh the voice of god well kind of like you know don lafontaine uh uh, his trailer narration, but you know, you you could not get a more basso profundo voice than Ted Cassidy. So I I felt a great honor to have to have worked with the Butler. Um, well, well, much anyway. like Joe Dante and Alan Arkus, you started out in the business uh, editing trailers for other films, right? Yeah, I mean, I my first job in the business. Uh, well, I, I was the worst clapper loader that Reflex Films ever hired when I was uh, 19, um, uh, and uh, they, you know, but I managed to get, um, I wrote a reference on their letterhead for myself when I decided to go to Australia, uh, saying that I could do anything, um, and uh, uh, luckily a TV station believed me and gave me a job in editing news film which was really interesting, and I would occasionally shoot news film and occasionally do interview uh, uh, people for news film when they couldn't get anybody else. Um, and I then volunteered to do station promos on overtime um, because I said, I think your promos are dull. And, uh, you know, just uh, I was 20, you know. <laughs> uh, and uh, so they said, okay, have a go. And Australia was very much a have a go mate uh society in 1966 uh so i did have a go and naturally i uh, i kind of emphasized sex and violence in the, the tv promos and um they were appreciated uh and this led to another network uh uh you know hiring me uh and i could do you know they gave me more money to make uh, more sophisticated promos with and they were very happy and when I said I wanted to go back to visit my parents in England, my father's Australian and my mother's Irish English, and I grew up in England, um, but and this, you know, I'd always wanted to visit the land of my father. So here I was, you know, after a couple of years, wanted to go and visit them, and they said, well, you know, uh, we'll give you a, a reel of your stuff to take with you, which is very generous of them. So a, a kinescope was made of my video, yeah, my promos that were always compiled on video. And I showed it to various promo divisions of networks in, a, in America and also a big company called National Screen Service, which basically, you know, did all the, made trailers for, uh, you know, a variety of distributors and serviced cinemas with posters and stills. And they had a, a, a they had a division in England, and uh, they said, go see our division in England, and um, maybe they'll give you a job. So naturally, when I got to England, I went and saw them, and they did give me a job. And I started making Hammer Horror trailers and uh, Spaghetti Western 
trailers. Uh, Chuck Connors in Kill Them All and Come Back Alone. Um, uh, uh, I think Uchido, yeah, I forget the Italian. Uh, anyway, it was, uh, uh, and I did Once Upon a Time in the West. Was the, 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 that, that was one trailer that I did, and you can find that on YouTube. Um, uh, anyway, I did about 25 trailers for them, and then the Australian said, please come back and run the whole network's promotions. And I said, I will if you let me make programs. Uh, and so they said yes, and they flew me back. And so I, I had a really interesting time for a number of years at Channel 9 on Sydney, <clears throat> uh, you know, doing you know, promos uh, and, and being basically an associate producer and, and, and film sequence director on variety shows, Quest of Quests, uh, uh, all, all sorts of things. So I got a good grounding in, in different, let's say, different genres of television, um, but naturally wanted to graduate to drama. Uh, but the step was for me to make a dramatized documentary. I raised money to make a dra dramatized documentary called The Stuntmen, and that was won a prize at the Sydney Film Festival and became my calling card as uh, someone who you know can direct action. Uh, so I wrote The Man from Hong Kong, and I was in the right place at the right time when Golden Harvest were looking to uh, get involved with international co-productions to spread you know, their, their product to a, a wider marketplace than Shaw Brothers, their rivals, um, had been doing. Uh, and of course, you know, even with, with Bruce Lee gone, they had a huge international reputation, and uh, um, Wong Yu was then their next star. He'd been a number one star uh, at Shaw Brothers. Was this before or after uh, Master of the Flying Guillotine for him? Um, this was after. <laughs> no, he, um, one of the films of his that I screened for the Australian cast before he arrived was Master of the Flying Guillotine. I think they were a little taken aback. Uh, <laughs> I love I mean, that film. <laughs> I do. Yeah. It's hysterical. Uh, and uh, it, so, you know, it, but it, it, it really, you know, it, it, it uh, did well with Asian audiences. And uh, I think uh, it, it's, you know, it's lasted the test of time because it's people still want to watch it. Right. I mean, we're talking about it right now here yeah. in the 21st, the 22nd century. Some well, century. <laughs> I'm really, being I'm, the I'm, only per person here who's, who saw it in 2019, and in that context, it's it's amazing. What well, you know, I can't watch it. Like my first thought was, this would have been something my friend Todd Riley and I would have caught on HBO, and just championed amongst our friends. Of you know, you got to see this because it's sort of, it it sort of had the action of a James Bond movie, but it is a lot more. It's even more chaotic <laughs> and I mean, down uh, to the choice of the song of, of the title song which is one of we were talking we were talking before um yeah I, that song is one of my favorite like am radio hit song songs it's it's that perfect little beatlesy little bgs in there and yeah, this it has catchy that john, that john glenn um kind of bombasticness like like a bomb theme does yeah and so watching it in 2019 there's there's nostalgia 
But then again, I'm also thinking of the time period it was made in. And while I'm watching, I'm thinking this seems like it was made five, ten years later. But then the, then again, there's elements of it that are just sort of starting to come into action movies now or the, the over-the-top aspect of it. Of, of course, now they have CGI and, you know, gi- the gigantic budgets to do it. But, um, you know, this, you, you, you could easily just like give this a, a 2019 surface coating and it would and amp, amp it up a little bit and it would fit right in and about halfway through the movie I, I, I realized this is this is a, a, a send up but I loved how it was dry it was dry it wasn't yeah it wasn't I mean, that, thinking that is my approach to to genre homages uh-huh. uh, uh, which I love I mean I suppose like so many filmmakers we all want to make the films that excited us as a child and uh, encouraged us to go into this crazy business uh, and so we end up, you know, and I think Spielberg is a good example of, uh, you know, of making the films that uh, absorbed him as, as, a, as a kid. So, you know, Man from Hong Kong was certainly, uh, was, let's say, a, uh, a homage that was not at the same time, you know, both uh, honored and satirized the standard genre tropes mm-hmm. of particular genre. Uh, and uh, I like making genre cocktails, and so you know, there's a you know, there's a good shot of James Bond in there. There's plenty of chop sake, and there's plenty of you know, a bit of dirty, dirty Harry, and dirty Harry. Yes, well, a Chinese dirty Harry comes to Australia, decides to go after Mr. Big, and basically wrecks Sydney. Uh, <laughs> what's not? Um, so that was yeah, my there's concept. that line in the film about. The, about the end of the second act, beginning of the third act, where um, Taylor says, "You know, Australia's got a small population. He's going through them pretty quickly." Uh, well, that's that. That was one of my notes. Is every bystander in any action scene in this movie doesn't like usually bystanders just get out of the way. In this one, every bystander gets their whole day ruined, if not like their livelihood or or something. You know, every everything, every table gets overturned. <laughs> Every well, fruit cart. Yeah. I mean, that was and one I, of the, oh, one no, of the things I was trying to. Uh, one of the things I was trying to actually, you know, uh, focus on was uh, the appalling amount of uh, destruction of property, not to mention human life, um, that the hero causes in the in the cause of justice. Uh, and uh, there seemed to be a certain irony there that. Uh, so buildings have to blow up, cars have to be skittled, uh, houses driven through, uh, and you know all, all sorts of people, you know, beaten unconscious. But um, this is all in the cause of justice, uh, and this is what a hero should do. Right, uh, right. The the locals just sort of they're they're not happy about the town getting wrecked, but they're just gonna go along with it because he's a fellow cop. Yes, I love it. And uh, so um, I. I want also to. I wanted to end the picture on a laugh, uh, and as written by me, uh, you know, the when the, the top of Wilton's penthouse blows off, and incidentally that fireball could be seen for 30 miles, tra- traffic on the Harbour Bridge stopped. Um, 
anyway, that's another story. Uh, but uh, uh, you know, when when the the two Australian cops, you know, you know, look at the burning building, um, uh, it, it, I hadn't actually, you know put a, the right button on it in the script. You know, they were just to look astonished and our hero would just shrug and walk off. Uh, but it just seemed at the time, you know, why don't they all roar with laughter? Uh, and uh, then our hero can shrug and walk off. Uh, and that, that made for a much better ending and kind of, it, it really tied it up in, uh, from a, you know, a genre homage point of view, a nice, a nice, nice neat bow. I do want to point out that one of the, the cops, the cop, uh, Taylor, is played by the great Roger Ward. Yes. Who shows, he shows up again in Turkey Shoot. He's a major part of The Road Warrior, Mad Max 2, and other countries. Uh, was this, I'm assuming this yeah, was the Mad Max 1. He's a Mad major part. He's in Mad Max okay. 1. Uh, and he actually plays Maury Gross. He's the one who says, you're getting... This country's got a small population, yeah. and he's getting them rather fast. Okay, uh, but I'm sorry, my notes got switched. Laurel and Hardy of the uh, the Australian mm. Federal Police Force. Oh, he's great. I mean, I love the fact that, that everybody has a very distinctive face mm. in this film. Everybody is red. Um, but I mean, Ward is Ward was really re a revelation for me because I'm so used to him playing heavies. Mm. And he was just a lot of fun. Yeah, he, Roger's got a great sense of humor. I, I first worked with Roger on my, my first film, The Stuntmen, uh, where he was part of the stunt team. Uh, and you can see him down there uh, helping to build the, you know, you know nine foot uh, you know, uh, you know, cardboard box rig uh, that. Uh, um, the, you know, our lead stuntman at the time uh, falls into from 90 feet above um, from the cliff. Uh, and so there's Roger pulling on ropes and, uh, uh, you know, people who, you know, have you know, done well, you know, have helped me a lot in the early days could be rewarded. So whenever I've had an opportunity to cast Roger again, um, I have, and he's you know, he, he naturally, I thought of him when I wrote the part of uh, Taylor. Um, and naturally, I put him into Death Cheaters. Uh, and he was an obvious candidate to be the, the guard from hell in Turkey Shoot. Uh, so. Well, I mean, he defines the tone of that film very quickly when he beats the de to death the, the tiny blonde woman. Yes, the, that that is a favorite Tarantino scene. Uh, he, he really liked that scene. That was the first thing he he talked to me about when I met him. I said, "You don't know me. I'm Brian Trent." Yes, I do. You made Turkey Shoot. Oh, what about that scene on the parade ground where they beat that girl to death? What were you thinking, man? That was awesome. Um, <laughs> wow. You know, uh, um, all my Christmases have come at once, and uh, to. Praise from him uh, is praise indeed. So, um, and then he started to actually recite the, you know, the, the Turkey's Creed that right. the court uh, has recited, uh, and he he knew it verbatim. Um, and so, yeah, I'm 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 glad it uh, it resonated with him. I thought that uh, George Lazenby seemed to really be enjoying. Being able to play a bad guy, 
he seemed to really relish that role. Yes, he did. I mean, uh, uh, after you know, after Bond, you know, he had to think carefully um, about what to do. And uh, often uh, actors that that get some you know a, you know a major star boost by a role, but then they kind of fall from grace. Uh, there's still a career to be had for them, even if Hollywood is ignoring them. Uh, and it's either in spaghetti westerns or the emerging Easterns that were just coming into vogue uh, in the early 70s. Uh, so he was offered a contract by Golden Harvest, um, and he was to be in several Bruce Lee films that they had planned. Um, but sadly, you know, Bruce had a, an aneurysm, and uh, it was not to be. Uh, but but they, you know, he was under contract to uh, uh, to Golden Harvest, and so when I proposed Man from Hong Kong, which I had initially conceived for Bruce Lee, um, uh, then uh, he was, you know, uh, he was the logical candidate to play uh, the villain, and certainly the one that uh, Golden Harvest wanted. And well, what's wrong? You know, if you're if you were a James Bond once, yeah, you know, that stays with you forever. He looked in, in the scene where he's introduced in the in the dojo. He looks so. Is he that big? <laughs> I mean, he looks like he's he's playing around with the, with the, the other fighters. Like they're he he they're looks children. like the guy who would beat up James Bond. Yeah, yeah. Well, he he did do extensive training um, uh, to be as fast and as flexible as possible. Uh, basically, you know, Caucasian actors just uh, or Caucasian martial artists until recently, uh, certainly back in the 70s, uh, they didn't have anything like the speed or flexibility of, of Chinese martial artists. So, and if you look at you know, how high can John Saxon get his leg in uh, a roundhouse kick in Enter the Dragon, um, it, you know, it's, it's, it, that leg is not straight, it's not moving right. in a, a, a precise arc. Um, uh, but, you know, that. Chinese are quite philosophical about that. Uh, it just makes them look better. Um, but we wanted him to have a reasonable standard because he had to go up against Wong Yu, uh, right. who was, you know, uh, while he wasn't as a classically trained uh, martial artist like Jackie Chan or uh, or Sammo Hung, uh, or, or all the guys that were, you know, big in those days, um, he was a great, you know, uh, athlete and street fighter. Um, and uh, he, you know, he had he could turn his hand to any style, but uh, uh, he, we, we, yeah, we, we went for his down and dirty style as much as possible. Anyway, that the, they they had interesting chemistry, the two of them, uh, and uh, and as you say, George, you know, you know, looks like, and he was having, you know, a good time, um, and uh, uh, so. Yeah, that, that, that it all worked out well. You, you briefly mentioned Samuel Hung. How, how did he get involved? I mean, I'm a, a big Hung fan, I'm, uh, particularly his the films that he's did with Chan and uh, Danny Yeo. Yes, I you think. like the, the Vampire series? <laughs> I, I'm, I'm a big fan. Yeah. Uh, he Samuel just uh, has a natural flair for comedy. Um, I guess probably by being a fat kid, being being... Mm -hmm teased no doubt uh he you know just 
yeah, turned that into his his size into a virtue. But he, you know, it's all muscle. You right. you, you try punching Samo in the stomach, and uh, you you could certainly sprain your wrist. I love the fact that within five minutes of the film, we have first we have both a chase between a car and a helicopter through the outback, and Samo Hung fighting on Air's Rock. Yeah, well, when you're Big. in the middle of a drug bust, uh, 1,500 miles from, the main, from a major city, um, and you have to get away, what do you do? Well, you run up the nearest rock. Um, and, <laughs> well, and maybe that's the be- you have a better chance than just trying to disappear into the desert. Right. Uh, but, you know, I wrote, you know, I wanted to do a scene at Ayers Rock, or Uluru, as it, uh, it was always known by, by you know, the indigenous people, and there's now officially called Uluru, um, and uh, not named after a white explorer. Um, so, uh, I, you know, it was a, with some of my writing, the tail does wag the dog, and I thought, well, uh, I want uh, the drug bust to take place in a spectacular location that no one has seen very much of on, on film other than in a couple of nature documentaries. So, we, you know, we spent money to go to a to Ayers Rock and to, you know, uh, shoot for three days there. Uh, so uh, it, it, that it, it's I like to have a hot start. Uh, you know, uh, a you know get yeah, get the blood pumping as early as possible. Uh, you know, get some adrenaline running and uh, so uh, and let's choose you know an unlikely but very spectacular location for all this to happen. Uh, and I love the fact that that fight happens partially vertically, so to speak, as they're ascending the rock. Yes, yes. Uh, well, it's the, the only way to use it. And, of course, that big rock that Roger throws at Samo, that, um, that's a real rock. And uh, <laughs> sorry, I, I got, uh, the big rock that Samo throw, throws at Roger, uh, that um, he, he has to get out of the way. He did. Well, R- Roger's an ex-wrestler, so... Uh, uh, anyway, we, we used what we had um, on the rock uh, and did, did the fight. Uh, and, uh, you know, it was, uh, w- w- I climbed that rock three times in one day, 900 feet. It's sort of, sort of good for the quads. Uh, so, um, anyway, we, uh, uh, we, we had fun doing that. So, but Samo was 22. Uh, he didn't speak any English, and I didn't speak any Mandarin or Cantonese. Uh, uh, and he had already, as a young stuntman, um, I think he had, had some Peking opera training, um, he had shown such promise uh, that they could see, hmm, this guy could, uh, this guy could be a, a star character actor as well as a, a good martial arts choreographer. So he was assigned to, um, uh, to the movie by Golden Harvest for as the, the martial arts choreographer, jointly with Wong Yu. Um, and, uh, um, you know, uh, so I was in the, in the desert with, you know, uh, you know, a key actor, and neither of us could speak each other's language. And, you know, I had to, you know, sort of guide the, f- the action and the fight. Uh, and it was really quite easy to do it with sign language and, you know, with play fighting with Roger myself. And uh, then he would come and mimic some of those movements, but add 
uh, something better. Um, and uh, uh, so, uh, uh, you know, we, 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 it, it was, yeah, it w all worked out perfectly. I have an odd note. Okay. Um, one thing, when, when, when I was in college in film school, I would, ha I would get assignments to write a script for uh, this kind of script, this kind of script, and I had a roommate who would stand over my shoulder and be like, you know, you need this, you need to, see, you need to see this. And, and one thing that was his constant diatribe was in action movies, kung fu movies, nobody kicks people, people in the groin enough. There should be more groin kicking. It's, it, it shouldn't be just the cult, you know, it's usually a big deal and kind of a joke when they do it in a movie. He said, no, when they fight, they should be kicking themselves in the gro And he specifically wanted me to write a movie that ended with the bad guy putting a lighter in his mouth and then the good guy to, to hold on to his lighter or something. And then the good guy kicks him in the, in the balls and his head explodes. So this movie was filled uh, with, with groin kicks and about as close as I've seen in any movie to the lighter in the mouth groin kick gag. At least it was a, the, the grenade in the mouth, push him into the vault full of explosives. And that's close enough. But yeah, I have to contact this guy and tell him he might have his dream movie. <laughs> yes, well, he, he hey, prescient, uh, definitely. No, I mean, uh, the grenade in the mouth was, you know, one of the first scenes I thought of. Uh, I mean, I had the concept, Chinese Dirty Harry comes to Australia uh, and, and wrecks the place. Uh, so what are the big set pieces that I, uh, that I want? Well, uh, I, I, I want this hot start to take place at Ayers Rock. Uh, I want to have a character who can fly a hang glider and that our hero will then some, somehow miraculously be able to uh, fly one perfectly on his first attempt. Um, and I want uh, a, a forced confession um, by you know, sticking an explosive, um, a grenade, in the mouth uh, of the bad guy. Uh, and somehow I will write a script that will uh, knit all these things together and uh, have excuses for other action set pieces. Now I know that that is probably uh, not the way to uh, go and write a deep and meaningful uh, piece of, uh, of cinema. Um, but uh, uh, I, my training as a trailer maker um, made mm -hmm. me identify the elements that, that the public respond to. Uh, and so uh, I'm, I was, you know, in, in the, I, I made over a hundred trailers for theatrically released films or direct-to-video films. Um, and uh, uh, so uh, I think, oh, you know, how can we, you know, uh, how can we show little bits of things that, uh, you know, would be appealing to the target audience? So when I came to start writing uh, my own films, starting with The Stuntman, um, I, I wrote, you know, sequences that at least one shot per, you know, action scene would be worthy of the trailer. So, uh, and that was my philosophy, uh, in, in putting these things together. I, I feel that Argento kind of does that too, that he comes up with 
a certain set pieces he wants, certain images, and then mm -hmm. builds the story around them. Yeah. Um, the, the I don't thing... think no, it's it's a, way, it's a way to go. I mean, strictly speaking, it should all start with character, and mm -hmm. and the interaction of that character with other characters who have perhaps conflicting uh, agendas. Uh, and I have, yeah, you know, my character was pretty linear. The the film is quite obviously very one-dimensional, and characters are very one-dimensional. But they are, you know, they're, they're sort of signposts uh, along the uh, along the path, let's say. Yeah, uh, but there's. And, uh, it, it well, I look at it as a, the, the the structure of the script is like a coat hanger, and then you hang these little set pieces off that coat hanger and hopefully they will balance out uh, and the enjoy the audience enjoys the ride there is one dimensional that there are there's some little touches there that that are added like um the uh female um hang glider pilot after um that that are uh, that are hero bets. right and the, the next time the next time he contacts her she's in bed with an you know she's portrait you know you see very rarely in a movie, especially in, in uh, during that time period, would you see her, if if the hero gets with her, you don't see her with some other guy, and and she's with this other guy, and you can tell she just is, she's sort of living the the James Bond life of like, oh, okay, I yeah. got this guy here, he's one of my hate guider pilots, and that was just a nice little touch that you wouldn't see in in the usual action movie at this time. Or, or you could say it was a flagrantly sexist uh, uh, you know, grace note. But no, it was, it, it was to show that this was an independent woman. Just because mm -hmm. she was a hero didn't mean she was going to be pining for him uh, for the rest of her life. She was an independent woman who was going to behave like a man. And um, that's frankly, you know, that was my philosophy at that time. Uh, and... I, you know, that scene was not to to put put her down at all, but to uh, to say, hey, you know, she's as entitled to make to to you know have multiple sexual partners if she wants to as much as a man. Oh, I, I I think it shaded her character in more than almost any other of the male characters in in the whole movie. It was it was in just one little scene. It put all that in there. I I, I really liked it. Yeah. No, well, I. I yeah, I thought it elevated her character. Well, good. I, uh, I'm pleased. Well, I, even though you have a linear and formulaic structure, that you can't put little grace notes here and there that you know reflect your own thinking, either um, uh, with filmmaking or uh, or politically. Yeah, I, and I mean, what I think, you know, as a as an that that I like about action films you know at the, at the base is well the action but the the kinetic sense of it and and this movie has and and it seems like i'm uh, that's why i'm here i'm not an expert on australian cinema but it seemed like in that time period there just seemed to be this bumper crop of amazing australian like stuntmen or or crazy australian or crazy and amazing stuntmen who would be willing to do little extra smash up a car a little more extra than than maybe say stuntmen's in another country that have you know higher regulations maybe or something but this movie just had a a kinetic sense to it like 
there was one scene where a van's rolling down a hill and you see the actor in the van and it's a sort of standard scene of a of an actor rolling down a hill in a van but in this scene there's <laughs> there's flames in back of him <laughs> as he's rolling which you usually don't see you usually don't see flames inside of a car with an actor and it adds an extra sense of urgency and and just just a raw putting you in an an action scene there was the i was i was wondering if the cameraman had to change his drawers after that one scene of the car blowing up and it looked like a piece of the door it was a piece of sh big chunk of shrapnel of the car just comes flying towards the camera and there's a second where you're thinking is this going to knock the camera over is it <laughs> this going to be one of those shots it landed about uh, 20 feet away from me. Um, but You were behind we, the camera? I, I, well, we had two cameras, uh, and uh, the, each camera operator was covered with a blanket uh, because we knew the dust was going to fly. We initially set cameras, obviously, to put the car right in the middle with Ayers Rock you know, perfectly framed in the background. Um, and then you know we thought well let's move back a bit uh and still create the same frame by foreshortening the lens um and uh so we did but just in case uh you know something flew out of the car that shouldn't there was a spotter behind each operator i was behind john seal so that if something really flew towards us and he could not see it through the viewfinder and uh, and he had a, a blanket over him as well um then i could at least drag him out of the way or the other spotter i forget who it was uh, could uh, drag uh, russell boyd out of the way um and uh, um so the uh, when the explosion took place the, the lesson learned from that explosion was when you blow up a car, you wire the doors. Uh, so uh, if you had a, you know, a, a, a section of wire uh, that you know, was attached to you know, a, a, a structural piece of the door and also to the car, then the door could blow off, but maybe it wouldn't go more than five feet away. Right. Uh, so in this case, the door blew off and uh, it, it, uh, it spiraled towards us, uh, and, but then fell uh, 20 feet from uh, where I was standing. Um, and it, it never looked like, to me, it was going to come close. Mm. It was sucking away from us slightly and not. So I wasn't already putting my hands on uh, uh, on John to drag him out of the way. I just watched it and I could see pretty instantaneously that it was not going to hit us. But through the lens, it yeah. looks, it could. I mean, I, I love the fact that, that in all of the action sequences, you do have a sense of the geography of where everything is. Oh, well, I'm, I'm, I'm glad that you noticed that because that's something I do try to pride myself on is geography the spatial relationships between the various characters and elements yes. uh, in points. And I am tired of watching fight scenes, which are a sort of machine gun edited blizzard of long lens shots that it, it try to create energy, uh, 
uh, that, that ultimately diffuse your involvement with what's going on between the combatants. Uh, and I, you know, I, I, I was influenced by, you know, classic Kung Fu and that matter samurai staging where, you know, a whole bunch of different movements takes place in the frame, even if the camera is moving. Uh, and you catch it all and you get a greater, greater sort of appreciation of the skill of the participants. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I liked a whole lot of, uh, well, I, I liked the style that Chang Che brought to uh, a number of, uh, of, of his Shaw Brothers movies, um, uh, where he would choreograph a, a sword fight in the Deadly Duo, for instance. Um, and it would be a tracking shot, and our hero would slice and dice his way through five or six people. Um, the camera always kept him in frame from head to toe, so you uh, so you, you could see his feet, uh, and when yeah, particularly when he did a kick or. Uh, but the various bits of of cannon fodder that he was getting through, um, all had wounds preset on, on their f front. So that as he sliced them, they pirouetted away, and you know the the slash, uh, right. the sword slash was visible, and you know the shot would go on for 15 seconds, uh, and be very dynamic, and there wouldn't be a single you know dead spot in it, and I kind of liked those, uh, and uh, so uh, you know I I do believe in geography, uh, you don't need to uh, you know you just need to orient the audience uh, in the location um, and um, uh, uh, but just make sure that the you know we, we always know the spatial relationship between the participants the the climbing the sequence where you climb where uh, our hero climbs up the pipe that looked like it was very real how did you get the stuntman to do that oh easy uh, Grant likes climbing things um, if you see any of my, you know, if you see Danger Freaks, um, and, well, I, did you watch Man from Hong Kong on the Blu-ray? I, I own a digital version of it, so that's the, the version I watched. Okay, so this was like a download from Umbrella or... Uh, uh, from Amazon Prime. Well, from Amazon Prime. Okay, right. Well, the, the, the Blu-ray has... Uh, several other of my uh, 1970s films uh, in standard def uh, on as well, and it may be a purchase that uh, you, you you might wish to make sometime because uh, the 4K transfer is uh, really good. Um, but it has Kung Fu Killers, Death Cheaters, Danger Freaks, um, the Stuntmen, and Stunt Rock all on the the disc. Um, somewhat overcrowded, but uh, it, it, it's all there. Hey, so I'm all, I'm all for, for for more for your value, you know. <laughs> yes, yes, certainly. <laughs> I think it's twenty something dollars. Uh, um, anyway, but um, Grant is the human fly. Um, I managed Grant Page's career for the, his, the first five years after I discovered him uh, and created vehicles for him. He's in all of those. Um, so um, he, uh, he is you know, physically very adept and he understood climbing. 
he talked me down a 300-foot cliff once, North Head in Sydney, which you can also see that cliff in uh, Danger Freaks. Uh, and it's simple. You keep uh, uh, a, you know, three points of contact with the face at all times, you know, two feet in one hand or two hands and one foot. Um, and uh, uh, it's, uh, it, he just has a natural ability. So the way we broke the scene down was, it was firstly, I, I wrote it for a very specific location, which was uh, the back of the Australian distributors building, the Greater Union Organization, Greater Union Theatres, that's the back of their building. And the road below is in fact a dead end lane. Uh, well, pretty, yeah, it, it does exit around a corner, but it's, um, it's a one-way lane. And at night, we can close it off, and we could have cars um, going down that lane to give the impression of real height. Because what you need is like geography. You also need relativity. How far right. is the person from, there, from that person? I thought there was not... some sort of sp uh, forced perspective going on. Well, it, well not really. I mean, okay. it, it was... Uh, so first of all, um, Wong Yu, who had just been trying to practice uh, what it would be like in a hang glider to be tethered into the wind. Unfortunately, the hang glider you know, fell, you know, crashed 30 feet, and I think he cracked one rib doing that. Um, but he is a man of iron, and uh, he was determined to do the parts of the climb that were uh, safe. Um, uh, he, it, as many as he could. So I broke it down this way, that he would walk up to the beginning of the drain pipe and start to scale it and then move through the, you know, laterally to the horizontal drain pipe that was, uh, that would then get, take him to the vertical drain pipe um, going up the building. And he would then, in one unbroken shot, get to the second floor. Uh, and uh, so the audience could think, hmm, oh, well, he's, he's really doing it. Um, then Grant took over, and I had a camera in a cherry picker, uh, which was like the poor man's crane in those days. Um, and so we put Grant on the, um, uh, on, on, on the drain pipe, and you know, without, uh, without you know, being wired, um, he then went up a number of different floors and then came down again. Um, and then we put, we went up top uh, and, you know, started shooting down the drain pipe to the bottom. And we put Wang Yu uh, wired uh, uh, on, on those sections and had cars pass below him um, and play the scene without music. Um, and it is it has a certain tension to it. it that that scene reminded me the most of a, a James the way a James Bond movie would would do that scene very very quietly except I was expecting when you looked over his shoulder when you saw over his shoulder like a blue screen background of the height or, or something like that and then when the first car went through I could actually feel that feeling of vertigo from from the movement of the car and I was just like that is that is real so it was almost like a improved upon James that, that was one of my favorite sequences in, in the whole whole movie I really liked the the feel of it and the atmosphere of it 
I, I don't have a fear of heights, and I was feeling a little vertigo with it, which is always good. The only other things that make me feel vertigo like that are where the guys put the GoPro cameras on and they'll climb those radio towers that are, you know, a thousand feet tall. Yes, yeah, um, that, that, that's, <laughs> that makes the, my stomach a little queasy. I am afraid yeah. of heights. Um, and uh, so, uh, but... Yeah, and I, and I tried to cure that, afraid of, you know, that fear of heights when Grant talked to me down North Head. Um, and, uh, but, yeah, I, I have a very healthy respect for, particularly at this age, for falling over. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I, I had a fall recently, literally on my face, and I still have a big bruise on my nose. Yeah, I, I often tell the the 20 year olds I work with yep you're still made of rubber you're still you're still good <laughs> yeah, yeah, yes I also like the, the the fight scene between Wang Yu and uh, the the thug on top of the elevator that's me oh oh well hey so I guess you you and he choreographed that yeah more or less I mean in a little yeah freestyle but mm. I mean, I, I kind of, it's partly vanity and partly expediency. I kind of could see that I should play the part of the, the martial arts manager uh, who has one line that will enable our hero to clearly identify this as a Wilton uh, bad guy, uh, um, you know, nest of vipers. And uh, then having you know, failed miserably to take on Wang Yu, would then foolishly recover and rush out and try and chase him, uh, seeing if he's got into the elevator, uh, and uh, then ultimately fight with him on the roof of the elevator. Uh, the co-production required that 50% of the budget be spent in either Australia or Hong Kong, uh, right. you know, it's evenly divided, though 90 plus percent of the story takes place in Australia. Uh, so uh, in order to balance things out, certain Australian interiors were mm -hmm. built in Hong Kong, the interior of the police cell, for instance. Right. Uh, the, the corridor and the exterior of the, the uh, the prison uh, was in Australia. It was the Wentworth Women's Prison, in fact. Um, and uh, similarly, the and the so the cell was built at the Golden Harbour Studios. The whole martial arts academy uh, was built in the Golden Harbour Studios. But the corridor uh, outside it and the elevator were at the Greater Union Building, up which we had done the climb. Uh, so uh, I, instead of bringing an actor to Hong Kong uh, for one line, I would do the line. Uh, and I'm not the greatest actor in the world, though I, I, I do a reasonable impersonation of John Cleese as a film director. Um, but uh, uh, it, it, uh, uh, it, it just seemed you know, sensible to, uh, for me to play that part. And also, you know, I, vanity, I thought, wow, I'd, I'd, I'd love to do a fight scene, but of course, you know, I should have been a better fighter. But I should have, yeah. I also wanted to be punched through glass, uh, so that was that was sugar glass. Um, 
And that that went off quite well, and I think I got the respect of the Hong Kong crew for doing that. Um, and they had already seen me you know, set fire to myself to persuade George that he could be set fire to. Uh, so uh, anyway, the, the, the elevator fight was uh, just something, I, another of those set pieces. How about a fight on top of an elevator where you can see the big heavy counterweights um, uh, m yeah, moving and you better not accidentally stick your elbow too far out of the, uh, uh, you know, off the, the sort of the, um, you know, off the top of the elevator. So, um, but I, I had lumbered myself with, with, with a weapon, the, the steel whip, which right. really lend itself ideally to good choreography on top of that. But it was a, you know, it was an interesting variation on a fight that um, people hadn't actually you know, seen very often, the fight on top of an elevator, and, and certainly not an actual practical one as opposed to something carefully contrived in, uh, in the studio or these days uh, just a totally static uh, set with green screen all around and right. the counterweights put in uh, digitally. I've been always emphasizing to Chris that one of the key things about Grindhouse Cinema is that it should show you something you've never seen before. Low budgets. You, you have to do something um, to compete with the studio level film at, with uh, much more money spent upon it. So, indeed, uh, and all my uh, early stuff was trying to push the envelope in one way or the other, grind kicks obviously being one of them. Um, but... Uh, we yeah the the idea is to you know to try and uh, give them uh, maybe a little bit of forbidden fruit or just a new wrinkle on an old uh, an old right. cliche so how did you come up with the idea of using the hang glider to infiltrate wilton's hideout well um i hang gliding was just coming in in australia and had been pioneered by a man by the name of bill moyes uh, who was building these hang gliders and selling them. Um, and Matt Grant Page being, you know, just a, a, a addicted to adventure, um, as soon as he saw a hang glider, he said, oh, I'm going to learn that. Uh, and, uh, I, uh, and I would occasionally accompany him uh, on his, you know, when he would do, you know, you know, start learning it at Stanwell Park, which was a great place where you got great wind lifts off that well, cliff. Yeah. We see Samuel Park in the third act, right? Um, not the third act. You see, it went after he is called uh, Caroline, who has right. been just obviously engaged in some you know, fairly gymnastic activity with a companion under the sheets. Um, uh, if, if, you know, she says, Come, go take the road south to Stanwell Park, you'll, you'll find me. And in Stanwell Park was the the premier place in uh, south of Sydney where uh, hang glider uh, pilots would, would uh, congregate. Um, so, you know, that you know, Grant quickly learned how to hang glide, became very skilled. And uh, so I built that into the script when I wrote it because uh, I, I managed Grant and I wanted to to make this film a showcase for all the things that we do and which were considerable. I would have loved him to have been involved in the car chase, but 
due to the internal politics of the, the film, I had to accept another stunt choreographer of more purported experience uh, with vehicles. Uh, I, you know, it was kind of a little disappointed, uh, but we kept, keep, kept adding, you know, stuff to the car chase till it became the kind of epic eight minutes that it currently is. Um, but, and so it, it, it wasn't a, as I feared in the first week of the, of the shoot, going to be a, a damp squib uh, of a car chase. Um, but anyway, Grant, Grant can turn his hand to anything. And um, I built the hang gliding in um, because I knew he could do it. It wasn't a question of writing it first and then finding someone to do it. Uh, it, it, a lot of what's in the, the film and was scripted because um, I knew it was possible. It, it's like the principle that Robert Rodriguez uh, says: if look at what you have and make the movie around what you have. In your case, you had a guy who could climb walls and hang glide, and well, and and hang gliding leaves. I mean, so but with with both your your major cities that you see you have to if you're filming the hang gliders you have to film them from way up on a big hill overlooking a city which is always just very visually beautiful and arresting and i mean i remember right about this time when the hang when hang gliding started and you know before you had the internet and something it had to be something like a movie or something that you saw it in or a tv show but usually it went from the movies into the tv shows and you know, and and you know, six months after this movie came out, Charlie's Angels were hang gliding, taking hang gliding lessons or something. And it was sort of my my father was obsessed with. We were out in rural New York where nobody could really there wasn't really any place to hang glide, but he wanted to hang glide so bad. And uh, I I seeing this movie, it, it just was like, of course, you know, it's it's such a the the idea of hang gliding and the reality of it is so visual and and exciting anyway and especially the way they're doing i forgot that like originally hang gliding wasn't as much running and jumping off a hill as catching a a draft up and then riding it down mm. yeah now uh, the thing is you sometimes need 200 feet to correct a problem if you go into <laughs> right. a jump or you you pitch you know, you know, you know, too steeply to the left or to the right, uh, you need 200 feet to correct. And a lot of the accidents that have happened and that have caused, you know, you know, paraplegic uh, injuries um, have been because the problem occurred uh, between, well, lower than 200 feet from the ground. Yep, my father finally got a chance. He he got a, a bunch of his friends had hang gliders, and they went to this big, big hill, um, you know, amongst a bunch of cow pastures. And my father took a running start, got about halfway down the hill, and his hang glider curved, and parked him right in the middle of a a thorn bush. So it was just a hang glider sitting on top of a thorn bush, and we had to go and extract him from that and that. Completely cured him of his obsession for hang gliding after that. He wasn't well, interested at all. Very sensible. I mean, I, I went up once and I came down hard uh, from 
only about 20 feet and uh, so okay okay I've, I've had my maiden voyage thank you very much uh, yeah I, but Grant is just you know he just had the ability to mm. ride the wind he he yeah, he was very you know sensitive to its changes. I mean, it was it's, the, those shots are very cinematic in that you have this very brightly colored hang glider just front and center, and then you have all this wonderful geography around it. Mm, yes, well, that's that that's I like wide shots. You know, I. I uh, I, I like cityscapes. I like desertscapes. Uh, you know, uh, you go to the movies to be in a darkened environment, to be transported to another world. To have uh, an experience. To have an experience. But, you know, when you're watching a, a film in the anamorphic ratio, uh, where theoretically, you know, you're, if you're sitting well enough forward, it virtually comprises your entire field of vision. Um, then you know it, it can suck you into that world, uh, and you can yeah, imagine that you are there. Um, but um, I, you know, I think I, I love spectacle. So uh, uh, and so I, wherever possible, you know, give them you know a, a gorgeous, spectacular image when you can. Oh, oh I, I just want to ask uh, during the, the chase scene. The, the car chase, the eight-minute car chase. There's one car that's driven off the road, and we see it flip over, and we see the dri the female driver flipping around in, in there with it. Yeah. Was she okay? <laughs> Was she okay well, she after? Fine. Well, firstly, she had a helmet, uh, okay. uh, which you kind of see, uh, but, you know, it was... I didn't see it. I just... <laughs> no, no. But, uh, you know, but she was the stunt... Uh, the... the car chase stunt coordinator's girlfriend uh, and so she had to have a stunt so that was her stunt. Uh, I think it's kind of one of the damp squibs of the of the, uh, uh, of the car chase unfortunately um, how much of a, of a sequence like that is planned out and how much of it is improvisation well yeah there was a sort of a plan and a sort of an improvisation let's say uh uh, we had a deal with a Chrysler dealership. Uh, I had bought a Valiant Charger in 1972, and I, I liked my Valiant Charger. It was a you know, good, beautiful car, you know, uh, a nice sort of bright blue. And I thought, well, a Charger would be good for the car chase. You know, it's uh, it's very macho and you know, phallic, and you know, it's. It, it's an ideal car for our heroes. So we arranged that we would get a brand new Valiant Charger from the Chrysler dealership, and we would, uh, uh, and they would give us um, some, you know, seven or eight other cars uh, from their used car lot that we could wreck and not return. Um, but we did have to return the Valiant Charger in the same condition as we acquired it, brand new. So, you know, that, that naturally the Charger was the, the, you know, the vehicle he hijacks. Um, and, and I love uh, the fact that there's not that cliche, I had to come in here in this vehicle sequence. It's just, out you go. Out, yes. Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, look, that's, that's, that's what a Dirty Harry would do. Uh, and uh, so in the course of the car chase, you know, all these other cars get... Uh, 
um, skittled or uh, in, the in the finale, uh, you know, a major crashing and banging and sideswiping goes on before um, our hero drives through the house and uh, um, then kind of uh, uh, then cuts the other car in two before it blows up. So in the course of you know, the car chase, which is, you know, shot piecemeal over, over you know, the entire schedule, um, the, we did $4,800 worth of repairs to a $5,000 car and returned it, you know, beautifully panel beaten, beautifully repainted to the Chrysler dealership. Now, a year later, the film is showing in the Rapallo Theatre on George Street in Sydney, uh, and a member of the audience is enjoying it. And then suddenly, after the you know, van gets blown up and our hero's seeking you know, transportation for the van, up comes this nice blue Valiant Charger. And he grabs it and drives off. And the brow of this particular viewer furrows because he sees the number plate. And that is the number plate on the brand new car he bought about nine months before. And then he sees that car, you know, ram, sideswipe, you know, generally, you know, commit motorized mayhem uh, for the next eight minutes. Um, and then is finally seen driving into Sydney with uh, smoke pouring its uh, engine. And indeed, the cops pull it out, pulled it over after that shot. They, we, you know, it was one of the many shots we stole without permission. Um, uh, and uh, but we got the shot. Uh, the uh, uh, anyway, uh, so he was he was not happy, uh, and he went to the private dealership, and uh, um, they had to give him another new car. Uh, but uh, I, I mean, that that's just one of you know. One of life's little comedies uh, that um, the film business is capable of creating. Um, you know, we, we were kind of, you know, everything's much more formal and corporatized now, and you know, legal issues are you know, much more important, and indeed they should be. Uh, but we were kind of learning on the job, uh, and uh, you know, we, you know, and that was certainly a lesson to be learned that. Uh, <laughs> Um, there must be a clearer understanding, let's say, of what uh, we were going to do to the car uh, before we returned it. I mean, we broke the wishbone. I mean, we did everything to it, and, and, and all of it was replaced, and it was, in effect, as good as new, but it wasn't exactly new. So, um, Chris, you want to talk about the book, right? Yeah. Oh, well. Um, Alice Through the Multiverse is a, you know, time-twisting paranormal thriller you know, told with a wry tone, which a lot of my films have. Uh, I think uh, Siege of Firebase Gloria and uh, Happy Face Murders, and, uh, you know, um, many of them have a wry tone while still dealing with the, the genre uh, that they are in, uh, yes, ostensibly seriously. Um, but I, I wanted to write something that yeah, it was full of set pieces that I always wanted to do. And so I wrote a screenplay called The Executioner's Daughter, and it was optioned for good money for you know a number of years. But we couldn't get Scarlett Johansson, we couldn't get Kieran Knightley, we couldn't get any of the young, you know, tw early 20s 
uh, actresses that were that had international profiles because you know in the foreign markets you know the the, the male casting is the most important aspect you know it's, or it certainly was let's say back yeah you know, uh, back in the early 2000s I started writing it in 2004 um, anyway it was optioned I uh, and uh, but finally you know it, they couldn't get it financed the, the the 15 million dollars was was you know too hard so it reverted to me and I thought well I, I really like what I have written I really think it's an, an interesting story uh, and it has you know some great set pieces um, well I will write it as a novel uh, and uh, then maybe someone will want to you know, buy the novel and make a movie out of it. And maybe with me as the director, that would be nice. Um, but uh, the, uh, I, you know, I, I found that um, uh, the, uh, well, the publishing world was at that time in the, the late, in you know, 2009, 2010, the financial crisis, etc. They weren't interested in new writers. They were only, they were having trouble selling the old writers. Um, so having you know done uh, uh, you know having written the novel, it, it just uh, agents wouldn't uh, even respond. Uh, so I thought, okay, too bad, put it aside. But then when I moved to Portland in 2015, uh, I thought, hell, I yeah, I believe in this thing, and uh, so I reworked it, and what you have now is. Uh, a, a book called Alice Through the Multiverse, uh, and uh, it, it it's you know with the the adjustments that I made to the original uh, novel, uh, it's a it's a richer and uh, and smarter um, a book, and it builds to basically a a thesis uh, on actually uh, how the world could and particularly America could be. Uh, a better place to live in uh, and so it has a little bit of a political agenda um, so well, it is a, a lot of your a lot of your films do yeah it, it is yeah it, it, it's it's certainly uh, of, of a yeah shows yeah so that is written by someone of a, of a progressive bent um, and uh, so uh, so that is Alice through the multiverse I, I say to people who ask me about it that if you like my movies, you will like this book because it is a movie in prose, and it's uh, I self-published it because you know they that's you can wait two years sometimes for a book you write to actually hit the market. Um, so it's out. It sells a few yeah. copies, um, and um, I you know I think I've only read one negative review, and that was by some lady who. Who was kind of expecting, you know, Lewis Carroll? Um, and I, I know a, there is a deliberate play on Lewis Carroll by the title that I've chosen. Um, but the concept of of parallel universes, parallel worlds, parallel, you know, lives in different time streams, um, yeah, that is a, a coming idea. I was perhaps a little ahead of my time in 2004, um, but now if you you know, you see, you know, that great, you know, Netflix uh, new series with Natasha Leone, uh, Russian Doll, um, where she's undergoing, let's say, kind of a, a deadly version of Groundhog Day, 
getting killed every day and wondering and waking up in the same bathroom and wondering why. Um, I'm thoroughly enjoying that series, and uh, I think uh, you know the same kind of enjoyment can be applied to to Alice through the multiverse. From a genre point of view, it's it's Game of Thrones meets Jason Bourne. Yeah, I mean, uh, what's not to like? It, it took me. I published my first two novels through uh, a publisher, and it took over two to three years for both of them to come out. So I more than understand your impatience with uh, with modern publishing. Did you have to readjust your mindset from writing screenplays to writing a novel? Because, of course, there are different tools that you need to write a novel. Well, the beauty of, of novel writing is that you can get into the heads of the characters. Uh, and hear their thoughts and understand their reasoning for why they do what they do and and you can provide their background now all of this you have to convey somehow in shorthand in a screenplay uh, so it was actually quite easy for me to expand it out from screenplay and of course I added elements that were not in the screenplay uh, considerable uh, new elements uh, but welded them into the um, you know, into the whole I think quite uh, you know cohesively um, so to me it wasn't a problem uh, because the the roadmap was, was already, you already had like an extensive outline so to speak in the screen well I mean the, the screenplay if you didn't if you synopsized each scene uh, then it provided you with you know a, a roadmap as to where the characters were going and how they basically interacted with one another and I saw opportunities to expand whole sections of the screenplay uh, and certainly when I get into the historical when when, when, with the, the, when the modern Alice is trapped in the medieval period uh, as herself as her modern self um, I was able to have I think quite a lot of fun with her attitude to uh, you know the, the the clerics that were wanting to have her burned at the stake, um, and similarly, I could have fun with Alice, uh, the medieval girl. You know, dealing with you know people with these cell phones to their ears the whole time, uh, and uh, you know this incredible tube train that she thought was a steel serpent. Um, anyway, it's a it's a fanciful piece, but uh, it it. it it has, you know, um, uh, you know, a, a serious philosophical debate at its core, um, and I think the best exploitation movies of, you know, the exploitation era, all had a serious idea that they were uh, that were sort of wrapped in the the uh, you know the, the glittering you know wrapping paper of yeah. uh, exploitation tropes. Uh, I mean, I think um, uh, Wild in the Streets, for instance, is a classic. I love Wild in the Streets. That's a great idea and a really serious idea that is, is debatable today. Um, I mean, we Heck, have. I mean, yes, if you, I know that you heard uh, the review that I did with Desmond Reddick of, of your turkey shoot. Right. And 
primarily because it looks like it's not really that far into the future, it's very kind of weirdly prescient today. Yes. With what's going uh, on. Well, I, as Friends I get obedience. A... obedience is work. Work is life. And uh, believe me, there are forces at work in this world to bring about, uh, make, to make people understand, hey, this is the way it is. Get used to it. Yeah. I as I get older I I become more and more of the opinion that genre movies and you know, you know lower budget movies at, are better at communicating ideas you know political ideas or social ideas than say a, a high budget Oscar bait you know um message movie which aren't bad movies but I think it's just, and um, I remember it was. I think it was an, it was an interview with uh, Penn Gillette, and he was quoting a conversation he had with Teller, where Teller had said, you know, and when if you really want to try to convey a deep, deep message in a, a movie, it's really hard because you only have two hours, you know, or more if you're pushing it. Whereas a book, you can, you can explore it for. a thousand pages if you have to and go over every detail and and flesh it out but when when you when you put it into something that's fun and exciting like uh for example uh they live is has, yeah. when when that came out in the movies i went to see it with my girlfriend and it was in the it came out the day it came out it was in the second run theater for a weekend and we went to see it Friday and Saturday because we enjoyed it so much and then it just disappeared from the theaters and then it came out on video and had a second life but nowadays it's there's memes about it and people use it as a way to communicate about modern society it's it's just very easy to put those pop images to work and you know that that movie has more life to it now than when it came out you know and more awareness of it than when it came out as opposed to you know a, a serious meta i'm trying to think of something that came out at the same time that was trying to say the same thing but maybe like wall street or something mm -hmm. but that might not be the best example no but i know what you mean uh and, and take it take the movie get out yeah yeah that was a brilliant way oh. of of dealing with racial issues that uh, you know people didn't really want to discuss, uh, and you you put them in you know a, a sci-fi horror uh, genre, uh, and suddenly they they really hit hard. I believe that now I haven't seen the the DVD of that, but I believe the alternate downer ending is right. available, uh, and uh, I think they're wise to. To end it the way uh, they did for theatrical release, because uh, um, it, it would it, it it ended on an upbeat note, uh, and that made it more palatable to the white audience. Uh, yes, I'm, I'm so glad that it, it it did the business that it did and got the acclaim that and the Oscar. It is so um, weird saying Academy Award winner Jordan Peele, but it's also so satisfying. <laughs> Yes, exactly, exactly. Oh, by by the time they were by the time they were carving open, you know, he's getting ready to bone saw someone's head open. I was just like, this is, 
this is a proper that i i was late to seeing it i it was on my list of shame when i finally saw it and you know by the time i'd seen it everybody had heaped their praises on it and all my art art film friends were you know dissecting it and stuff like that and you know then by the end of it i'm like this is you know this could be a john carpenter movie you know this is the, these guys are and they're getting their first taste of the bone saw and they love it <laughs> and yes. uh yeah it's it's amazing and uh, i'm really looking forward to his new one that's that's looking yeah. very promising yeah no i will always see anything those guys do well, is there anything you want to conclude with? Because well, I must. I, I want to take the time since we're face to face to thank you for all the hours of entertainment you've given me. Well, thank you. Do you, are you a, a regular watcher of Trailers from Hell? Yes, I am. Uh, I, I am you, also. You remember, I posted the trailer for Inframan, which this guy's oh, yes, be watching did. down the line. Yeah. Uh, your, your commentary on that because I love that film I saw it when I was very very sick and it just enhanced the experience it resulted in you getting better yes I've, sure. I, my, my favorite trailer from hell you did was uh, Holy Motors which is a, a movie I love love I love, love and it, not enough people are talking about it so yeah no it's a Unfortunately, he has not gone on to make something as stunning as Holy Motors. Uh, and so if he had, then I think that would have kept Holy Motors alive. But, I mean, that's a film I've seen three times. Uh, and yes. So, uh, yeah, it is so clever. Uh, but I hope he, he comes up with, you know, with something, you know, that is uh, spectacular or, uh, let's say, that is you know mind searing let's say uh, yeah that so. movie so specifically just reached something in me that it makes me wonder you know i mean if it, if it might you know if his further films would just hit that same balance it's it's such an odd odd balance i mean watching that movie was reminded me of like have of dreams that I've had and st and stuff like that. It was just a brilliant. I, it was weird. I saw it on video first because I, I couldn't find it and I'd been reading about it. I couldn't find it in any format and I found a download of it and then they played it at the art theater here and I had the the pleasure of going to see that and like watching the movie and watching the audience at the same time. Especially during the the troll scene with the Godzilla music is one of the most. I don't know why that combination is so perfect, but it is. Yeah, yeah. It's a you know it's a it's a, it's a great piece, and I hope that that he can produce another one. Uh, well, well, you can get Alice through the multiverse through Amazon. I'm assuming. Yes, on Amazon and on Kindle. I mean, if you are on Kindle Unlimited. It is free. Uh, Kindle is three ninety nine or three sixteen. I've heard it quoted both ways. So anyway, um, I, I get a few cents out of that, uh, and the paperback is twelve dollars. Uh, and uh, so, uh, and you know, I think it is a fun read. And if you think, you know, if you're a Kindler, um, do I want you know hours of fun? Uh, and cliffhangers uh, for the price of a cup of coffee. Um, that seems a reasonable deal. Uh, 
Um, and and the, but but for those that really like the tactile nature of reading, to be able to turn those pages and uh, bookmark and and so forth, which is which is frankly the more satisfying way. But I'm That's I'm, I'm glad that there is. Yeah. I'm glad that there is Kindle, and I my neighbour uh, on on the left, he's he's a, addicted to mysteries, and. So he, he gets what he can out of Kindle. He says so many of them are not very good, uh, and and your book was well worth um, you know actually purchasing uh, <laughs> uh, as a book. Um, but uh, no, I uh, I hope that it will sort of uh, you know I, I I want college kids to read it because of the ideas that it has and because it celebrates so many genre tropes in movies uh, and. Uh, I mean, it's one thing to stage a car chase, but you have to write a car chase. And how do you write it so that people can hear the squealing tires uh, and uh, and so forth? But anyway, uh, it, it's it, it, it is uh, you know something I'm proud of, and it has you know it has a political hypothesis at the end that uh, um, is you know I think worthy of debate. Um, but, uh, Anyway, we'll, we'll we'll see. But thank you for your interest, uh, and um, thank you for being people. so awesome. <laughs> it's my pleasure. I'm writing my memoirs at the moment. I'm on page 279 of my first draft. It's a long and tortuous process. And how, long... how old are you at page 279? I uh, this is, I have reached 2002. Okay. I don't think it's going to go more than. Uh, than 350 pages, uh, though okay. I think the Kindle version, and, and I'm going to try and get a decent publisher if I can, because I, uh, and maybe you know, my minor cult uh, following would be enough to uh, acquire a publisher. Um, First of all, I don't think it's as minor as you think it is. Well, I don't. I think there are a lot of people who revere you very much. Well, thank you, and may you all be younger than me, because eventually my 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 colleagues will all die off. Uh, you know, I've got to write these these memoirs so that there are people who actually know what I'm talking about that are still alive, because uh, <laughs> I I do start right back in 1946, uh, and well, nine, nine, yeah, uh, I think my the first time I saw the uh, an image projected on the screen was in Libya in I think 19. In, in 49, uh, projected on a sheet uh, from a 16 millimeter projector out there on uh, in the open air on the airfield um, at night, and that was my first introduction to the visual image, and I believe it was a western. Um, anyway, it goes from there, and I think a lot of the stuff I've written about the 60s and the 70s uh, is of interest historically speaking, to do with the technology of, of movies, how they're shown and how they're advertised and so forth. So I'm trying to write it not just as a hooray for me uh, memoir. Um, I'm sure there's a, a degree of vanity and narcissism to be found in it. Uh, but, uh, uh, but I'm also trying to make it a sort of instructional piece and a, and a historical retrospective for what I regard as, you know, the now concluded golden age of cinema uh, and I was very lucky to be in the right place at the right time uh, and had the best of it I would have a much harder job uh, 
you know, starting out as a 20-year-old now to get to make the kind of movies that I wanted to make and, and many of which I did get to make. Uh, it's much harder for young people now. I'm going to Texas uh, next week to uh, give a, a lecture at a, um, a, a Texas library system that is having, having a convention and they're just bringing, they're paying for my airfare and, and right. so I'm coming down to address you know, people, kids from the age of 10 to college kids about movies uh, and, uh, you know, uh, possible career in the movies, um, though I would not, you know, necessarily, you know, I think if, it's, if there's one other thing you can possibly do that you'll enjoy, uh, you should probably do that. But if you're an addict, um, as I am, then you're going to have to, you know, give it your best shot and hopefully it will work out. Uh, so uh, it, it's, it is certainly different for in this new compressed corporatized uh, entertainment world. Yeah. So I wish people luck. The one thing I would say, you went to film school and uh, did it cost you a lot of money to go to film school? Um, yes, it did. And I got to say, well, I mean, it was a different time then in order to get, I grew up in the country in a cultural vacuum um, you, I, just before I got to college I, I had just gotten to get my hand on like a video camera and stuff like that but I'd read a lot so by the time I went to film school I'd read all the texts and stuff but it was insanely expensive especially the school that I had to go to to get to but that was the way I could get to a room full of equipment uh, although if if I had it all to do over again, I would have taken that money, which I probably wouldn't have been able to get my hands on because it was loans, but I would have taken that money and made a movie would have been more practical. I mean, I met, I, um, one of the best things about film school is my, um, one of my film teachers ended up being, uh, when I went into, when I ended up doing music, ended up being the fiddle player in my band. And that was one of the best connections, you know, I've made in my life. So it was that was good. And and I was in school, you know, I, when I was in film school, I remember telling the class, they were all like, I'm going to Hollywood. I'm going to try to be an animator for Disney. And I said, I'm going to wait till I can get a camera that I can plug a disc into film on it, take it home, plug it into my computer to edit on my computer. And my teacher in the class literally stopped and laughed at me and said, well, <laughs> You know, maybe in 40 or 50 years, you know, in sci-fi times, but, you know, you should get realistic. And, uh, you know, so while I was in a band, I was able to and, you know, I was sort of addicted to video editing was my what I really love to do. And so a friend of mine put together a public access show and we just did a weekly show and then we were filming and editing every week and it was grueling, but it was awesome and I was enjoying music so I was in a in a in a weird time period that like ki kids nowadays have a really good visual language before you know without any kind of training or anything just from watching having so much stuff to watch and pick up on well expensive film schools are you know not worth the money no and you can, everything that you need to learn um, you know, from the internet. I mean, 
-hmm. There are many lectures on every aspect of filmmaking, cinematography, editing, writing, uh, acting, etc., uh, directing. So um, yeah, maybe you take... I think film school hit its peak, you know, when when like George Lucas and and Spielberg were coming out of film school. That was when it seemed to re that was when your senior project could be turned into a major motion picture or something like that. Nowadays, yeah, I would not <laughs> spend that money. Yeah, no, and uh, and there are so many film schools and so many people graduating from them, so many people for you know agents uh, to peruse, you know uh, some you know it, their, their samples, and it's it, it's a very crowded marketplace, and uh, you know the people uh, I know that are working didn't even go never were didn't even think about being filmmakers they my my housemate owned a clothing store and she's a metalsmith and she ended up working on um fred olin ray movies and yeah. another friend is a cameraman for qvc and he his girlfriend just got him a job there one day because he was unemployed and you know and i had another friend who's he's a he's an electrician now because he knew a lot of Irish drinking songs and went drinking with, a, with an electrician. And the guy said, if you ever come to New York and want a job in the film industry, look me up. I like you. And, yeah, he's working all the time. Well, that's great. Well, I must go and uh, uh, play pool with my wife. Please uh, do. Needless to say, you are always welcome to come back at any yeah. time. No. And I once again want to uh, extend to you because I am planning on sitting this guy down to make him watch Wake and Fright. I would love your uh, input on that. I think you would be a wonderful set of eyes. Yeah, well, it's a, it's a remarkable film. I Actually, it, it, it is, in fact, a horror film. <laughs> it is. Uh, one of the key elements in a horror film is creeping dread. And very early in the film, you see the trap that is laid out in front of this man. Uh, and through his naivete and his, his, his sense of privilege, he walks right into the trap. Uh, and uh, it's, the ending is fairly ambivalent as to you know, what has really happened to him. Uh, and, I think uh, it would be a good double feature with the, with the original Wicker Man. Well, Thomas, it sounds like a it sounds like a description of our relationship. <laughs> to be honest, yeah. well, well, yes. Well, I, I must Mr. say, Mr. Shredder Smith must leave. Yes, I mean, I, I hate it, as you know, uh, and this could go on forever. But uh, um, I have a date. I, I know, so. of course. <laughs> anyway. Thank you very much for your interest, and uh, you know it's, I'll. It's, it's such a be pleasure. Happy to... I remember watching the first film viewers I saw was Dead End Drive-In on a VHS copy. Oh, wow. At a local. Me too. Just, and <laughs> I've been I've been a fan ever since, and I well, could never believe when I watched that film and got into that film that I would be sitting here talking to the, the man behind it.
visit our website at twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is always spelled T-W-O-T-R-U-E-F-R-E-A-K-S. You can email Two True Freaks directly at twotruefreaks at gmail.com. Two True Freaks and all of its excellent affiliates are available on iTunes, and you can choose to subscribe to either the entire network if you wish, or pick whichever individual shows you want to follow. We have so many shows to choose from, there's just bound to be one that appeals to your particular fandom. Just search Two True Freaks with an exclamation mark at the end, space, and the number two. You can find Two True Freaks on Facebook. Just search for Two True Freaks. If you ever leave your house and you actually have friends, why don't you tell them about Two True Freaks? If you've enjoyed our show, please, won't you take a moment to rate us on iTunes? That helps others find the show, too. Thanks for listening. And join us every Monday for new episodes of Two True Freaks. finally invited aboard one of these spacecraft, which landed near Ann Arbor, Michigan on October the 24th of 1954. This is a drawing of the craft. As I was leaving the craft, the commander, Soltek, said, soon others of your people will be able to have an experience similar to this.